Welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. I have two guests with me today who have co-authored the book that will be the subject of our conversation. The first is Michael Livermore, who was the founding executive director of New York University's Institute for Policy Integrity and now serves as one of its senior advisors. He is a professor at the University of Virginia's School of Law. The second is Richard or Ricky Revez, uh, Lawrence King Professor of Law at NYU and the current director of the school's Institute for Policy Integrity. Last week, Oxford University Press released uh, Mike and Ricky's new book entitled Reviving Rationality, Saving Cost-Benefit Analysis for the Sake of the Environment and Our Health. Today, we'll hear from the authors about why they chose to invest their time in this project, what messages they intend the book to convey, and how they see the issues described in the book playing out over the next few years. Stay with us. Gentlemen, welcome to Resources Radio. It's very nice to talk with you this morning. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. Of course. So I'm looking forward to talking about this brand new publication. Uh, But before we do that, we always like to start our episodes by sharing who you are with our listeners, uh, allowing them to get to know you a little bit better. So can you say just a bit about your backgrounds, including how you became interested in cost-benefit analysis as a research area? Ricky, why don't I start with you? Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Kristen. Um, I've been a law professor for 35 years uh, at NYU Law School. I, I served as dean of the law school for 11 of, the, of those years from 2002 to 2013. And I first became interested in the issues of this book, which I would characterize as the political economy of cost-benefit analysis, in the mid-90s um, when I served on the environmental Economics Advisory Committee of the EPA Science Advisory Board. And we ended up being the group that did the peer review on EPA's first guidelines for the preparation of cost-benefit analyses. And what struck me then, um, and led to a lot of subsequent work, was that in those meetings, uh, trade associations for regulated industry uh, came frequently uh, to make their case before us, but no environmental group ever showed up. So basically, the methodological developments around cost-benefit analysis were ceded to the regulatory community without the other side uh, having a voice. And that led me to this inquiry about why that was, how this imbalance could be eliminated, uh, and what it needed to be done uh, to make uh, cost-benefit analysis in the regulatory arena the even-handed analytical tool that it should be and not a thumb uh, against regulation. And and, and that got me embarked on a number of academic projects, an earlier book with Mike, and then led to the book that we'll talk about today. Okay, great, great. And Mike, what about about you? So I was a student in Ricky's uh, environmental law class. I was a a student at NYU. Um, Okay. Uh, now a number of years ago, but um, but prior to law school, I worked for environmental organization in New York uh, for several years, and uh, the issue that I spent most of my time on was uh, toxic waste cleanup and brownfields and the state Superfund system. George Pataki was governor at the time, and there was a big kind of legislative and policy discussion about those issues. And I, I was young; I was in my twenties, and I remember though. Uh, being very 
um, kind of impressed by the degree to which the environmental groups um, that I worked with were uncomfortable talking the language of economics and the degree to which it seemed that that was a serious impediment to their ability to be effective in, uh, in the legislature. They had their allies, but it constrained, it seemed to me that it constrained their, uh, their coalition um, in ways that were uh, not useful. And so when I came to law school and met Ricky and, and started to hear more about these issues, um, I kind of had that backdrop that really attracted me to, to this idea that cost-benefit analysis could be um, used in a, in a more uh, balanced fashion. Okay, interesting. You guys have clearly had a long and fruitful relationship over these years, too. Um, Ricky, I just wanted to kind of pick up on something that you said, which is that you know, I want to start our discussion by noting that this book is actually a sequel. Um, and you two previously collaborated on a 2008 publication entitled Retaking Rationality, How Cost-Benefit Analysis Can Better Protect the Environment and Our Health. And as our very uh, astute listeners will have heard, there are some marked similarities between the title of that first book and the title of this one. So I guess, Mike, let me let me ask you, why, why this second book now? Yeah, basically, the Trump administration is the, is the explanation in short. Um, and the Obama, actually, and, and the Obama administration. So the original book um, is, and maybe we'll, we'll speak about it in more detail, but the, the basic premise is that, as Ricky mentioned, progressive groups had uh, really not engaged in the conversation about how to conduct cost-benefit analysis, that that had um, hampered their ability to be effective. Uh, and we made that argument uh, in, in 2008. What this book does is essentially update um, the, the perspective there to take account of the Obama administration. And what we kind of argue in, in, the, in the more recent book was a successful, largely successful approach of the Obama administration of uh, marrying respect for cost-benefit analysis with a progressive uh, policy agenda. Um, then the reaction to that success of the Obama administration, and then ultimately to the Trump administration and what, uh, what it's been doing with respect to cost-benefit analysis in the last four years. In some gotcha. sense, the second book was necessary because of the success of the first book. At least that's what I think in unoptimistic days <laughs> is that um, I think the first book actually played a role in spurring much more significant engagement by environmental groups and other progressive uh, groups in cost-benefit analysis. And that actually created a reaction on the other side, um, which was to walk away to a large extent from cost-benefit analysis and to some extent even malign it. Um, I guess the commitment of regulated industry to cost-benefit analysis was limited to um, the methodology as long as it supported um, anti-regulatory measures. And when the methodology was actually used in a more even-handed way and showed how significant regulation um, brought large net benefits to society, um, part of the other side just walked away. And that uh, created, we thought, the space and the need for the second book. That's great. And that really does kind of help me 
understand uh, how support for cost-benefit analysis has has kind of ebbed and flowed over time, um, you know, under different administrations and different political persuasions. Is there any other kind of, before we dive into the book directly, context you'd want to provide about you know, when cost-benefit analysis really became a primary tool in regulatory decision-making and sort of how the various uh, sides of, of the political spectrum have looked at it? Sure. Um, so uh, cost-benefit analysis first became um, a really significant part of regulatory policy in 1981 following the election of Ronald Reagan when he um, promulgated an executive order requiring uh, that cost-benefit analysis be performed um, for major federal uh, regulations and created an institutional framework within um, the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, he launched the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs uh, to supervise how agencies conducted their cost-benefit analysis. Agencies were required by the executive order to submit both proposed and final rules uh, for review uh, by OIRA, the Office of Information Regulatory Affairs, before uh, the rules could be published. Uh, and this was seen as part of Reagan's uh, anti-regulatory uh, agenda that uh, he kind of ran on. But what was interesting is that Bill Clinton, after being elected in 1993, uh, promulgated his own executive order to replace the Reagan order. And a lot of uh, Clinton supporters thought he would just repeal the order and that would be the end of the extensive use of cost-benefit analysis in uh, in regulation. But instead, Clinton promulgated an order that is actually quite similar uh, to the Reagan order. Not identical, but quite similar. And that made cost-benefit analysis a bipartisan move in the regulatory state. Um, it was now not going to sort of ebb and flow with administrations, at least a commitment to having regulations be justified uh, by um, through cost-benefit analysis uh, became bipartisan. And so after the Clinton order, uh, cost-benefit analysis became an entrenched part of uh, the federal um, rulemaking apparatus. Now, having said that, um, it doesn't mean that um, while the Clinton executive order remained in effect and remains in effect today, uh, George Bush kept it in place, Barack Obama kept it in place, Donald Trump kept it in place. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that the commitment on the ground to performing it fairly remained constant during this time. And as I already indicated, and we can explore that more later because that is really an important part of the book, um, the right uh, started casting aspersions on cost-benefit analysis and started grasping at ways of uh, moving the conversation in different directions. Mm -hmm. Well, let's, yeah, let's turn to the book. I feel like I've given our listeners, um, I've sort of been holding people with bated breath before we get to the book itself. But so let's turn there. This feels like a good moment. And I will note that the book is organized into three primary sections. They are titled Guardrails, Charade, and Rebuilding. And I was thinking maybe we could take those in turn. So uh, let me start with Guardrails. And the chapters in this section focus on how we got 
where we are. Uh, the evolving set of norms and guidelines for the use of cost-benefit analysis in rulemaking, as you've started to talk about a little bit, Ricky, and those have been built up over many years, many administrations. And I would summarize your argument as this sort of decades-long accumulation of knowledge and experimentation and practice really formed the backbone of a kind of an important set of guardrails in the cost-benefit analysis process. And so I guess I wanted to ask, maybe Mike, I'll ask you, in your view, why do those years of experience matter? And maybe even more importantly, what were or are those guardrails protecting us from? Great. So let's take the, maybe the second the second part of the question first. Okay. So with respect to the guardrails, uh, the way I think of this is that you know, in the kind of modern administrative state, there's a, a basic fundamental tension. Um, which is that on the one hand, we look to administrative agencies for the expertise and impartiality. And for that reason, we imbue them with substantial policymaking power. Um, and so you have these expert agencies that are making important policy choices like, you know, how to address climate change or, you know, what's the safety of our roads or what kind of regulations are needed to protect, um, you know, ensure the safety of vaccines. So we're doing this on the one hand, but then the tension is that, you know, we live in a democracy and we ultimately want policymaking power grounded in the will of the people. We want there to be democratic accountability. There's obviously a role for Congress and elections and all of this. And and so this is the this is the tension. Um, the way we've more or less resolved that is that. Um, we invest administrative agencies with with a substantial amount of power, but they're subject to political oversight by um, by the president and the White House and by Congress. And what we want to achieve is a balance where uh, we have an appropriate amount of responsiveness to you know political oversight, but not so much that it turns into what amounts to partisan meddling and just the politicization of science and uh, you know a process that undermines expertise and the legitimacy of the of administrative decision making. So what the guardrails do, what they protect us against is exactly that. They create a space for the legitimate exercise of political oversight. And then the guardrails ensure that decision making stays within that constrained space and doesn't kind of crash out into the zone of partisan meddling and uh, uh, undermining science and the like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So so that's what that's what the guardrails are kind of for. And why the years of experience matter, I think, are, are two things. One is that doing cost-benefit analysis isn't easy, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it turns out there's mm -hmm. lots of challenges, mm -hmm. and it's a hard stuff. And so, you know, in a difficult task, you get better at it over time. And over the years, you know, we've developed methodologies to address different kinds of questions. But there's another thing, too, which is that you kind of get something like a common law of cost-benefit analysis, a set of best practices that have been endorsed by both administrations of both political parties um, that just have some longstanding, uh, just have been around for a long time. It doesn't actually necessarily mean they're right, but what it does mean is that they create a default. And the, what the default does is help ensure that the methodology is not being manipulated in a particular circumstance to get to a favored outcome. Right. You're not looking at the answer that you want to get and then doing the work to get to that answer. You're doing the work and then, you know, letting that guide you. So what that what that does is that means that when you see an administration or an agency departing from those longstanding practices, that's like a red flag that says, wait a second. 
especially if it's not justified. Like, why are you doing it this way rather than that way when this way is the way that the Bush administration did it and the Reagan administration did it and the Clinton administration did it? And you can't give us a good reason why. Oh, and lo and behold, it happens to favor, uh, you know, a special interest group at the expense of the public. Um, and so I think that that's kind of the dynamic there of why the longstanding practice matters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you're definitely uh, leading us into the next section of the book as well. I do want to come back a little bit later in our conversation to this question of um, the fact that cost-benefit analysis is very difficult and it does have, you know, it does present real challenges and there probably are some pieces of the puzzle that will always need improving. But but for now, um, why don't we get into some specifics? And, you know, I will note that the, as I mentioned, the next section of the book is rather provocatively titled Charade. And in these chapters, uh, you both call out a number of specific examples where you see the Trump administration in particular as having abandoned these best practices that you were talking about, Mike. And so, um, can I ask each of you to just highlight one example that you describe in the book? Ricky, why don't I start with you? Terrific. So um, that part of the book has six chapters. So there's six, uh, I think, very compelling examples. So the one I'll focus on for now is the use of co-benefits, which is the indirect benefits of regulation. I mean, it's well established. I mean, I think any um, uh, respectable economist would tell you that when cost-benefit analysis of regulation is done, uh, the benefits that should be considered are both the direct benefits of regulation, that is the benefits under the regulatory program that is justifying the rule, and also any indirect benefits that might come about. So, for example, um, a regulation of greenhouse gases will reduce greenhouse gases, and that's a direct benefit, but it might also lead to process changes that produce a reduction in particulate matter, which is a local pollutant, not a greenhouse gas. And those reductions in particular matter are the indirect uh, benefit of the regulation or the co-benefit. Mm -hmm. And Circular A4, which is the OMB circular that dates back to the Bush administration that gives agencies guidance on how to conduct cost-benefit analysis, is very clearly that co-benefits must be taken into account. And there's no uh, debate in the economics community about that. Um, the Trump administration has called co-benefits into question. Uh, and in fact, is trying to put together a set of regulatory measures uh, that erases the co-benefits of regulation um, as a way to um, make the benefits seem smaller and make it more difficult to uh, justify regulatory measures and make it, make it easier to justify deregulatory measures. Again, this is totally, it's not just like that there's a debate about this. This is like, you know, the earth is flat kind of an approach. But having done that, it doesn't even have the intellectual decency to be consistent. Um, in some cases, actually, deregulation will be helped by taking co-benefits into account. And in those cases, the Trump administration embraces co-benefits with enormous vigor. And the example here are um, the vehicle standards, the uh, uh, emission standards um, for cars, which are set by EPA and the companion uh, CAFE standards, fuel economy standards set by the Department of Transportation. Um, the only way that uh, the rollback of the Obama administration standards can even plausibly be justified, and actually can't even be justified in this way, but at least it comes closer to be justified, is by paying attention to some alleged safety benefits, mm -hmm. which the Trump administration embraces with vigor. Well, the safety benefits are not the direct benefits of um, 
vehicle emission standards for EPA. Uh, the direct benefits are reductions in greenhouse gases. And EPA doesn't even have uh, a vehicle safety jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. For the Department of Transportation, for the CAFE standards, the direct benefits are um, the reductions in energy consumption. You know, mm-hmm. It comes under the statute that was set up after the energy crisis, and we're trying to be less dependent on foreign oil. The Department of Transportation does have a safety jurisdiction, but not under the CAFE program. So any safety benefits are co-benefits. Trump administration vigorously embraces co-benefits there. But when it wants to get rid of the finding that the regulation of the hazardous air pollutants from power plants is appropriate and necessary, uh, it says that the co-benefits of particulate matter reduction should be ignored. So not only is, on the whole, the Trump administration's attack on co-benefits going against any plausible um, economic approach, but the Trump administration is being totally inconsistent. Uh, and it's basically saying we'll either embrace co-benefits or we'll reject co-benefits depending on what best serves our deregulatory agenda. And it's for that reason that that part of the book has the chapter name Charade. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Thanks. And Mike, is there an example that you would want to highlight as well? Sure. I'll, 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 do, I'll do something that is so over the top that uh, that it doesn't require any technical background to understand what, what's going on. So in the, the summer of 2019, the Food and Nutrition Service, which is in the Department of Agriculture, uh, issued a rule that would change the eligibility for the food stamps program, basically, um, which was going to eliminate assistance for 3 million people. So that's that's the, the basic rule. There was an analysis of, of the rule. And it became clear as the agency was uh, contemplating the proposal that one of the consequences is that half a million children would be excluded from the free uh, school lunch program because their parents would no longer be eligible for food stamps. The, The agency figured this out, learned it, and intentionally kept that information out of the final cost benefit analysis. Just just didn't put it in as a way of um, hiding, essentially, what one of the most important consequences of its decision was going to be. And so this wasn't in the weeds. This wasn't a technical matter. It was just the agency. Right. Tipping the scales. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So that's that's one example. Yeah. Well, let's let's turn to the final and more hopeful section of the book then, because you've obviously called out some places where these uh, departures from practice have had some pretty significant consequences. And But the third section, you write that it offers some of your thoughts on how cost-benefit analysis might be saved. And so what would you suggest are some of the most important actions to take to build or to rebuild trust in cost-benefit analysis? And then maybe on the flip side of that, are there any criticisms of cost-benefit analysis that have equally accumulated over the years that you do think the incoming administration should consider, or you know, parts that you'd call out for revision that might help rebuild that trust? So, Ricky, let me let me turn that one to you. Terrific! It's an exciting time to talk about this topic because in two months a new administration will take office and we'll be in a position to actually significantly change. Um, the practices around cost-benefit analysis. And I think the challenge for the new administration falls into three categories. Mm -hmm. So the first is undoing all of the damage of the Trump administration. And that won't be easy because 
it probably won't be uh, like just turning off the switch and saying, okay, all this bad stuff goes out the window and now we'll start afresh. Uh, the Trump administration has said that it would finalize um, a rule on how um, cost-benefit analysis must be conducted for uh, clean air rules. Um, and any regulation has to be undone through notice and comment rulemaking, which is a difficult process and time-consuming. So there is a lot of underbrush that needs to get cleared. It needs to get cleared quickly because otherwise it will um, make it more difficult for... Um, for regulations to actually be put in place. Um, the second component is modernization. Uh, this, I mean, the lack of modernization is not uh, particularly um, the fault of the Trump administration. So this, the first component is, the second component is not. Um, a lot of the building blocks of cost-benefit analysis have not been reviewed for a long time. I mean, the, the, the leading document uh, giving agencies guidance on how to conduct cost-benefit analysis, which I already mentioned, is OMB Circular A4. Mm -hmm. It dates back to 2003 in the Bush administration. It's a good document, but it's you know soon going to turn 18. Uh, <laughs> won't be a child anymore. It can vote. And so, and various components have not been updated. For example. Um, Discount rates of three and seven percent um, have to be used uh, to analyze the consequences of uh, future benefits and costs. Um, I think there is a view in the economics community that those numbers are high. There's also significant economics uh, scholarship on why lower numbers and perhaps declining numbers should be used in intergenerational settings and in settings uh, where the benefits happen way into the future and the case right, of like climate, climate change. change. Right. Yeah. And so those things need to get reviewed and need to be updated, need to be modernized. And Circular A4, uh, kind of a new version of it, needs to rely on the best scholarship as available in 2021 and not the best scholarship available in 2003. A lot of work has been done. Um, RFF has done a lot of that work uh, <laughs> and it should be reflected in how cost-benefit analysis is conducted. Uh, the third component, this is very important, is that distributional consequences have always been considered um, a relevant criterion for evaluating regulation um, it should be looked at alongside cost-benefit analysis. And the cost-benefit analysis executive order, uh, the Clinton executive order, and some uh, additional, an additional order from the Obama administration make that very clear. Mm -hmm. But we've never been successful at looking at distributional analysis, in particular the impacts of regulation on um, disadvantaged, vulnerable, and marginalized groups. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't have... Um, accepted techniques for doing that. Circular A4, for example, says nothing about distribution. But given the commitments um, and platform of the Biden-Harris uh, administration, statements in the campaign, uh, and given the particular time that we're living in our society, it's clear that attention distributional issues will be a priority. And cost-benefit analysis will have to um, adapt its methodologies um, to, uh, to make that inquiry possible. And that isn't quite the right word. I mean, it's gonna to have to go from zero to 60 very quickly to, um, to be able to uh, provide the analytical underpinnings to satisfy a very important political commitment. You know, this makes me wanna ask you guys kind of a spontaneous question too, which is, as you noted, Ricky, you know, RFF is very much steeped in this work and has a number of economists on staff who think about 
these analytical methods, you both are lawyers and you talk the language of economics with a fluency that is quite impressive. And so I guess I can, Ricky, could you just say a little bit more about kind of the intersection of law and economics here and um, how those two disciplines intersect in this particular area? Definitely. Um, well, you know, for better or worse, um, in the United States, lawyers play a disproportionate role in the formulation <laughs> of public policy. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just describing a situation. I'm not, you know, I'm neither defending it nor attacking it. I'm just describing it. <laughs> okay. And, um, and so I think the challenge is to be steeped in the best economics, at least as consumers, you know, I mean, I've actually... Mm-hmm. Uh, published in economics journals. I've actually even co-authored a couple of articles with Ken Arrow, the Nobel Prize winner, and other prominent economists. Uh, And I have some graduate training in economics, although I I, I do not have a PhD. Uh, But the question is how to make the best economics um, accessible to decision makers, which is basically both agencies and then the courts. These things get litigated. Policy Integrity, the group that Mike and I founded together and that Mike first directed and I direct now, um, participates a lot in these proceedings. And for example, we played a very important role uh, in getting um, a federal court of appeals in 2016 to hold that the Obama global social cost of carbon approach was a reasonable approach against the tax by uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce that argued that only domestic numbers should be used. Mm-hmm. And, and just a few months ago, um, an abicus brief that we wrote um, was very influential in a decision by a U.S. district court in, in California that held that the Trump domestic-only number was arbitrary and capricious and, uh, and struck it down. Um, so the challenge is how to make this you know, the best economic principles, and I think most economists, certainly most RFF economists would think that the way to value the damages of climate change is by looking at global damages and not, you know, some kind of subset of those damages, but how to make those arguments in a way that could be accepted by a court. And that's actually not something that, I mean, economists are trained to do. Um, and so it requires kind of a kind of expertise that groups like Policy Integrity have, where we have lawyers and economists working side by side, figuring out both how to bring the best economics to uh, the regulatory table, and then how to make it accessible and persuasive in arguments before the relevant decision makers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I agree with that That's exactly right. The the one thing I would would add mm-hmm. is kind of on top of identifying the best economics and can doing this important work of translation and bringing it into the regulatory process, that there is something useful about um, law and kind of the, the legal methodology and, and that style of thinking, that that independently brings something useful here um, that couldn't just be substituted by, say, someone with a, a econ PhD who kind of learned how to, how to communicate effectively which is that for a lot of these questions, there's a mix of normative and empirical issues in play. Um, Climate change is an obvious example, but basically any policy question is a mix of empirical and normative questions. And I think one of the value of a kind of a legal perspective is to clarify and identify where there are empirical questions, where there are normative questions, and, and think in sophisticated ways about those normative questions. 
the field of economics, welfare economics, has something to say about uh, many normative questions, but it's not the final, uh, final word. And so bringing to bear lots of different normative perspectives um, and creating space for those, uh, I think is another in interaction with uh, in the social sciences and the physical sciences is something that um, lawyers who kind of have a broad interdisciplinary uh, orientation can, can do. Fantastic. Thank you both uh, for kind of talking me through that, because that is something that um, I've been curious about. I, certainly, this seems like an area where the interdisciplinary work is important, and you both did a very good job of kind of articulating why. So, Mike, let me ask you one final question about the book itself before we wrap up. And um, I, I want to ask this question sort of centered in RFF's commitment to nonpartisanship. And so the book, as you've noted, calls out actions uh, of certain administrations by name. Um, but I would argue that what you've tried to create here is actually an apolitical book that makes the case for good cost-benefit analysis by addressing concerns on both sides of the aisle. Um, so I guess... Is that a fair assessment? Is that an overly optimistic assessment? How would you put this in a kind of a, a broad uh, bipartisan or nonpartisan context? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a fair assessment. It certainly was our goal. Okay. Um, and I think that one of the um, signs of, to the extent that we've been successful, is that folks of different partisan affiliations or, or even broad ideological orientations will find something useful there. We can disagree about a lot of things, and there's legitimate things to disagree about on, on regulatory policy and, and public policy more generally. But folks across the spectrum generally agree that evidence, analysis, expertise, that these are valuable things that ought to have a place in our decision making. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's really the argument of the book. And so it's one that we hope can find an audience uh, quite broadly. Well, fantastic. And I really do want to thank you both for coming on the podcast to talk about this new book. I will note uh, it was released on November 11th. I'm sure there are opportunities to purchase it should folks be interested. Uh, but let me close with, again, thanking you for joining me. And then with our regular feature, uh, Top of the Stack. So let me turn to you and ask if you have recommendations on more good content of any variety. I, and again, either related to this subject or maybe just something else you want to share uh, with our listeners. So Mike, let me start with you. What's on the top of your proverbial stack? Well, I'll tell you, one of my favorite uh, pieces of culture these days is um, a podcast by a physicist uh, at uh, Caltech. His name is Sean Carroll. Mm -hmm. And the podcast is called the Mindscape Podcast. Okay. It's, it's really fantastic. He's uh, super, super smart and brings in the broadest possible group of people that you can imagine. So one episode, he, he's talking with a guest about black holes or quantum entanglement. And then in another episode, he has Whit Marcellus talking about <laughs> jazz and time and in another episode, you know, he brings in social scientists or neuroscientists or philosophers to talk about free will. Hmm. Um, it's really fun, uh, very broad. And uh, I definitely suspect that uh, many of your listeners would, would find some value there as well. Great. Okay. Ricky, what about you? Um, a podcast, Nice White Parents. Okay. Examines racial inequities in public schools and 
underscores how even well-meaning people uh, can exacerbate those inequities. It's very actually very connected to some of the distributional issues mm -hmm. that we talked mm -hmm. about in this podcast night. Very highly recommended. That's great. All right. Well, shout outs for the podcasts all around. That's great. Well, gentlemen, thank you again for joining me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I would encourage folks to check out the top of the stack recommendations. And of course, if they're interested in the book itself. So thank you both. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Glasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.